Coming to you from the AT&T Podcast Studio, this is Long Story Short. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. Reporter Paul Munnies has been following legislation at the Capitol in the aftermath of the winter storm from two years ago and the higher costs showing up on electric utility customer bills. Paul, you've been tracking one bill that would change how electric utilities get rate increases at the Oklahoma Corporation Commission, right? That's right. Yeah, this Senate Bill 1103 came up and uh, would basically force the Corporation Commission to accept any utility plans to move to what's called performance rate-based making. And um, that's kind of a a streamlined approach to increasing rates uh, for customers. It's pretty complicated, but at the end of the day, it allows quicker and faster reviews at the Oklahoma Corporation Commission within a set period of earnings that the utilities are allowed to earn. Of the state's uh, main two electric utilities, Oklahoma Gas and Electric and Public Service Company of Oklahoma, are both supportive of this bill, right? That's right. Yeah, they both back this bill. Um, You know, they they are regulated by the Oklahoma Corporation Commission, which is a whole separately elected body. Um, And they they frequently have rate cases over there, but they've been frustrated in recent years by the pace of some of those rate makings. Uh, They said that contributes to what's called regulatory lag, which means there's a a period of time between what they owe their uh, vendors and everything for for service between uh, and then when they get uh, paid by customers. So they wanted to streamline process that the natural gas utilities are already on. Now, that bill went through a Senate committee this month. What happened then? Yeah, so it was a fairly quick uh, Senate committee meeting. Um, the sponsor of the bill was Senate Pre- President Pro Tem Greg Treat. Uh, he's given pretty wide deference to present bills in any committees that has his name on it. Uh, he deferred to uh, representatives of o- Oklahoma Gas and Electric and, and a, an outside uh, lobbying group run by former Commissioner Jeff Cloud that's supportive of utilities in general as well. They both answered questions uh, from committee members and it passed 10 to 2 onto the, the floor. Who's opposed to the bill? So a pretty wide variety of consumer groups are opposed to this bill, uh, including the AARP Oklahoma, which looks out for older Oklahomans. Uh, also, uh, a big group of uh, companies called the Industrial Consumers Group. And there was various other groups that were opposed as well, including um, the, the federal government, uh, which has a lot of Defense Department installations that use a lot of electricity from these, these companies uh, and Walmart stores as well. Uh, the Oklahoma Corporation Commission held a meeting to talk about that bill, didn't they? Does that happen very often? No, it does not. This is pretty rare to have something like that happen for pending the legislation that's going on during session. Uh, this was driven by uh, Commission Chairman Todd Hyatt, who has not been supportive of the bill at all. Uh, in fact, he said that utilities already have this option to come to the Corporation Commission to do performance-based rate making, and there's no legislation that's needed. Uh, so he basically used his bully pulpit to hold a, a hearing last week uh, at the Corporation Commission. He called an informational meeting. Uh, he invited all the groups, including utilities and opponents, and they all had their say in a three-hour meeting. Well, uh, maybe give us a recap of that meeting. 
Yeah, so the, the, the meeting kind of obviously had, had um, everybody involved in the bill and consumer groups, utilities. Utilities said it, it's, it would be good for consumers uh, as well as changing the, the way that uh, rate increases are done. It includes, includes higher storage for gas storage, which was a huge issue in that winter storm from two years ago. Uh, they ran through their gas storage pretty quickly with all the, the demand on their system. And so this bill would actually have caps on and how much they can put in storage and how much they're required to. Uh, a lot of the other groups said, uh, oh, wait a minute, you always tell us that uh, we're supposed to stay out of management decisions day to day, but you're going across the streets of the legislature and basically telling them to put stuff that you're going to require to do in your jobs as utility executives. That doesn't make sense from what you've been telling us over here all the time at the, the Corporation Commission. So they said it was a, a little strange that they're asking for a bill for these changes when they can already get them done at the Corporation Commission, but they've just been frustrated on the outlet lately. Uh, last week, there was an important deadline to pass bills from one chamber to the other at the legislature. What happened to this bill? That's right. It was a floor deadline, which meant uh, any legislation that came out of one side had to get off the floor to be sent over to the other side. Uh, this was a Senate bill, so we were watching it pretty closely. Um, now, there was another group opposed to this, the Petroleum Alliance, which represents a lot of the oil and gas companies that sell some of the gas to the utilities. Uh, they were opposed to this bill and put their full efforts behind it. And in fact, by the end of the day, on Thursday, the bill had not gotten a floor vote in the Senate. So it's effectively uh, dead for this session. Now, what's next for this piece of legislation? Uh, what have the supporters and opponents had to say since uh, the, the bill failed to get a vote on the Senate floor? Of course, the, the opponents were pretty happy that it was not voted on in the Senate. Um, the backers of the bill said they, they were helpful uh, to have a conversation that starts like this and kind of have possibly come back uh, next year, next year's session. Of course, it's not completely dead. It's still alive at the committee level and can be resurrected in the, the second session of the, this legislature uh, in next year's uh, lawmaking process. All right. Well, thanks, Paul. You can read Paul's coverage of those utility uh, rate cases and legislation and all his other coverage of state government on our website, OklahomaWatch.org. RA5 covers race and equity for Oklahoma Watch. In her latest story, she wrote about rules in some Oklahoma cities that could make it harder for in-home daycares to stay open and discourage the creation of new ones. Ari, what uh, what would these city rules look like? Yeah, so first of all, DHS is the agency across the state that licenses and regulates these facilities. So they already have rules, including capacity limits, but these city rules... Um, pile on top of those, basically. And they could take a lot of different forms. So um, one of the most common that I found in my reporting were capacity limits. Some cities might say that child cares over a certain size have to get a special exemption from a city board to operate in a neighborhood. And other cities might, might flat out say, if a child cares over a certain size, even if they're approved by DHS, they can't operate in a neighborhood. But city requirements can also create specific lot size requirements for child cares or require that employees of certain of or require that employees of child cares of certain sizes live in the home that the child cares in. All right, so what uh, could the effect of those ordinances be? 
Yeah. So a lot of childcare providers say that they already have to jump through a lot of hoops just to comply with DHS requirements and city rules add another complicated layer. Um, a lot of childcare providers are the only employees in their facilities. And so it would be inconvenient for them to leave work or shut down for the day to make a meeting to get an exemption, for example. So long story short, some childcare providers say these city rules are costing them extra time and money. And uh, how is that an issue related to equity? So there are a couple different reasons. One of them is that in-home child cares are typically some of the most affordable forms of child care. But then also a lot of child care providers are women of color serving communities of color. So some early childhood advocates say that if cities make it harder to legally run these facilities, they could be limiting child care access for groups who might struggle to find that care in other places. Now, a lot of your story was focused on Tulsa. What's going on there? So in November, the Tulsa City Council started the process of reevaluating its zoning code. It could take off some of the requirements that it's created, including a requirement that larger in-home child cares get a special exemption. But at the time of my reporting, final recommendations hadn't been made yet from the city. And so it was unclear what would ultimately be changed. Now, are there any members of the community who feel like, uh, you know, regulations are, are adequate the way they are and the city should just leave it alone? Yeah, I talked to a couple. One of them was Tara Toomey, who said that she lived near childcare for about 11 years up until that childcare moved uh, a couple weeks ago. And she said that she's not opposed to in-home child cares in general. In fact, she went to a couple when she was a kid. But she sees the requirements in the city zoning code as an extra layer of accountability. And she worries that if the city takes those requirements off, that it could put kids' lives at risk. All right. Is anyone looking for ways to help uh, streamline things on a broader scale? Yeah, so I talked with Representative Suzanne Schreiber, who is actually also from Tulsa, and she authored a bill that would prevent local governments from creating capacity limits. So in essence, childcare capacities across the state would be streamlined to the requirements that DHS sets out. And she said that she wants to make the requirements less complicated, but she doesn't want to prevent local governments from addressing neighbor concerns like noise or traffic. All right. So where is uh, Schreiber's bill now and what would it mean if it failed to pass? Yeah. So she, her bill passed through the House just before a legislative deadline and it's being considered by the Senate now. Um, but because she's a first term Democratic legislator, there's no guarantee that her bill will pass. And if it doesn't, cities will have to undergo a process like the one that Tulsa is going through now. And it could be a lengthy one. Tulsa's has already taken a few months. All right. Well, thanks, Ari. And for full transparency, Representative Schreiber is an Oklahoma Watch board member. Uh, you can read Ari's coverage of uh, local ordinances that could affect child care availability uh, and on our website, oklahomawatch.org. 
For her latest story, reporter Whitney Bryan has been talking with families who were recently approved for state waivers that pay for disability care. Those families have waited more than a decade for services, but they told Whitney they're still not getting the help they need. Whitney, why are these families struggling to find care if they have the waivers? Well, Ted, the waivers basically pay for the care they need. So they've been approved for this government funding that will go toward the services that they need. In in the case of the families I spoke to, a lot of them need what's called in-home support, someone to come inside their home and help them out. Um, And so now the issue is that there's no one available to do this work that the waiver pays for. There's no one to hire. And what do they want to hire those people to do? Well, these waivers pay for things like I mentioned, you know, in-home care, things like job training, art therapy, summer camps, uh, day programs that teach, you know, life skills. They can also help pay for someone to live in a group home. Um, But that one-on-one work with people with disabilities inside their home, that's the most needed thing um, that that folks are are needing to use these waivers for right now. And what do those caregivers actually do? Well, they do everything from bathing and feeding. They could be lifting someone, you know, in and out of a wheelchair or taking them out into the community to help work on their social skills. I spoke with a mother in Jinx. Her name is Andy Cooper. And her son, Kanan, has a rare disorder that causes him to have daily seizures. And he's 14 years old, but he thinks and acts like a toddler. So, you know, he needs constant supervision. Someone who can not only, you know, soften his fall if he's seizing, make sure he doesn't hit his head, but who can also just help watch and supervise him so that Andy can take a shower or do things around the house. You know, like a toddler, Kanan cannot be left alone. So what's causing the shortage of workers for those jobs? Well, Andy has been looking for about five months now since she got her waiver approved for this kind of care. And what we've learned during that time is that demand for workers in this capacity really spiked during the pandemic. So families were bringing loved ones home from group facilities because those facilities were more susceptible to virus outbreaks. So in-home care was needed more than ever. And at that same time, a lot of caregivers were actually quitting their jobs due to fear of the virus, um, you know, spreading or maybe catching the virus in people's homes, uh, the stress of these jobs and and just general responsibilities at home uh, that forced them to stop working. So essentially, this is a, um, you know, supply and demand issue. The biggest problem I'm hearing, though, is that the pay is really what's holding people back. We just gave a 25% raise across the state for these in-home caregivers. And now after that raise, they're making about $12.50 an hour doing this really challenging work. They could be answering phones at Costco for more money than that. Now, uh, the pay increase you mentioned, was that uh, part of a plan that the state announced last year to help eliminate the wait for services? That's right. So last year, lawmakers allocated three, uh, excuse me, $32.5 million um, and $11 million of that went toward this pay raise for caregivers. The rest of it went toward and is still going toward eliminating the wait list for disability services. So there were about 5,000 people waiting for those waivers uh, like Andy Cooper just got. And some of them have waited as long as 13 years 
um, and, and are still trying to get approved for that waiver. Well, the state's making some progress on that list now because the money was allocated, which means more people have the waivers. More people are looking for care, which means the demand is going to continue to increase, even though the number of providers is not. Well, how much progress has the state made on that wait list? Well, again, they started with around 5,000 people in May who were waiting uh, when that funding came through. And now DHS says that there's about 3,800 people still on that list, though not all of those people who came off have been approved for services. So far, fewer than 500 of those folks uh, who came off the list are receiving services. And even fewer are, um, and there's a portion of those folks who are also looking for the care they need, even though they have the waiver, much like Andy Cooper. The majority of the people, though, who have been removed from the list, they're not getting waivers. They were either disqualified, um, they were not approved, they rejected the waivers because they didn't want to go through, um, you know, the hassle of signing up, uh, all the paperwork and all of that. So there are a lot of reasons that that list has decreased other than people getting services. All right, what happens next? Well, DHS is still working through that list, and their goal is to get through those 5,000 families by March of next year, so in about a year from now. In the meantime, there will be more and more families searching for that care as they get those waivers. So that's likely going to fuel more competition for these providers. And lawmakers, agency heads, they told me they know another pay raise is needed for these in-home providers. So we'll be keeping an eye on that progress. All right. Well, thanks, Whitney. You can read uh, Whitney Bryan's coverage of uh, the uh, issues around the shortage of caregivers and uh, the state's efforts to ease that shortage on our website, oklahomawatch.org. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch which you can find on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This episode was recorded at the AT&T Podcast Studio. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening.